This evening, I want to try something a little differently as part of the sermon tonight. I'm very nervous about it, so I hope you'll all overlook whatever I do that might look like nervousness, but we are going to leave the old paths a little further to use an overhead projector. But I hope there are times where I wish I could leave you with a picture, something to tie some words into that would be before you as it's been before me, and I want to try it this evening, and I'll be, I'll, I'll be willing and able to take any criticism or approval if it helped you or not, and feel free to give it to me afterwards and not during. <laughs> but I, I want to try it and see if it might help to leave something visual while you're hearing something on your ear. I am very convicted about our lives. And I want to continue along the same lines I have been the last several weeks. I preached several, a couple months ago now, Give me thine heart. Do you remember that? Give me thine heart. He deserves our heart. Amen. He tells us we should give him our hearts. It's the first and the great commandment. I want to follow on that tonight. Four weeks ago, or, or five weeks ago, I preached to you about the life of Lot and Lot's life of compromise. Life, uh, Lot made choices for his life and for that of his family that were poor choices that led to the failure of his family in distinction to Abraham who made wise choices of righteousness that were to the salvation of his family. I want to follow on that tonight. A week ago, a couple weeks ago, I preached to you about the conscience, that candle of the Lord, that when it's burning bright, should be seeking out the recesses of our heart and revealing to us the things there that we ought to get rid of and excusing the things that we ought to keep. It is a glorious creation, but I fear that we sear it we stifle it, we put it under a bushel, we ignore it, we fight it, we oppose it, we argue against it, and we don't train it and feed it and nourish it, that it can be the vital part of our lives that it should be. I want to follow on that. This morning I preached about the deceitfulness of sin, and I definitely want to follow that this evening in looking at compromise because of deceit. I want to deal with the fact that our lives are lost to sin, not in a fell swoop, but little by little. And if you can get a mental picture of a little by little, and you get a proper picture of it, it should scare you. Because a little by little, you're capable of anything. Now, I know right now for anyone to jump up here and, and we could list a whole number of sins, and you'd say, absolutely not. But little by little, any of us are capable of any sin. That's right. And that's how the devil works, is a little by little. I want to try to give you a few pictures, but first of all, let me give you a few verses. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I fear for your soul, I fear for my soul, that we fight little by little compromise in our hearts 
and consequently little by little compromise in our lives. In Ephesians chapter 4, we have in verse 27 the words I want, neither give place to the devil. Now, since the 26th verse doesn't end with a period, we'll read it. Be ye angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. It's talking about anger. Be If you're going to be angry, if you've got to be angry, if anger's there, don't sin with it, don't let the sun go down upon it, and don't let the devil use it. Are three things about anger. But the principle applies to every sin. Give no place to the devil. We use the expression sometimes about people, you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Usually they're, well, I don't know who it's used about, I won't even say. But sometimes you've heard that expression used, you give someone an inch and they'll take a mile. You give the devil an inch and he will take a mile. He's, out, he's after your life. You let him have a little bit of it, he'll take it all. And so the Bible warns us, don't give him a place to get started. Right. Cut him off before he gets anything. Because if he has a little bit to work with, he is going to manipulate, deceive, and subtly take more. Just what we mean when we talk about you give someone an inch and they'll take a mile. We shouldn't give them a place in our lives. And what I want to talk about this evening to you from the Word of God is before this little by little takes over our lives, we need to cut the devil off at the beginning. And there are a few, precious few examples in this book of those that did it. Very few cut the devil off and didn't give him a place. There's too many examples of those that let him have a place and the consequences. But the Bible tells us to give no place to the devil, whether it be anger or any other lust or sin of our flesh and mind. We're not to give the devil even a starting place. The Bible says, The devil, as a roaring lion, is walking about seeking whom he may devour. He wants to eat all of you. If you give him a little bit, he'll end up eating all of you. The Bible says, Resist the devil in James 4, 7. And what? He will flee from you. Because there's easier prey around. The devil is limited. He's, he is limited. Thank God for that, that he's limited. But And if you resist him, he'll go somewhere else. It's not worth the fight. And that, that, ought to, that ought to motivate us, encourage us to put up a fight. The Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you. Give no place to the devil. Before these things even get started in our lives, we need to cut them off. The Bible says in Romans chapter 13 and verse 14, Oh, these are simple texts. These are simple, well-known well-rehearsed, well-taught, well-learned verses of Scripture. But they're verses that we've got to hold in our hearts and remember them and trust in the Lord that they are true words. Amen. Romans 13, 14, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh, to fulfill the lusts thereof. The warning here is, After give no place to the devil, is don't give your flesh any opportunity for sin. Keep away from it the opportunity for sin. Flee the opportunity. Stay away from the opportunity. Don't provide for your flesh to have something to work with. 
Don't look at things you know will give you a temptation. Don't listen to things that you know will give you a temptation. Don't be around a person that might be a temptation to you. Don't make a provision. You trust in the Lord. You say, but I might have to give up something dear. We'll look at some of those examples. There are a few men in the Word of God who gave up dear things because they were faithful. And we need to be faithful by not making provision for our flesh. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. The overall point I want you to get is we have to stop the little by little encroachment of into our souls of the devil and sin in their effort to take us off from the worship of God. We have to stop it. We give the devil no place. We don't make a provision for our flesh. And 2 Timothy 2.22, when we see something happening, we flee it. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts. Whenever we see, feel, know, sense, conscience tells us that a lust is being tempted, we're to flee that situation. Get away from it. You know, the Savior would say, pluck out an eye, cut off a hand. It doesn't matter that there might be a loss associated with fleeing it. Flee it. We're always trying to protect the little things that please us. Even when our conscience is saying, that little thing is dangerous for you. We protect it because it pleases us. We tell ourselves it's not that dangerous. I can handle it. And so we don't flee. The Bible says flee. And I know you may be thinking of a man who fled. And we'll get to him. He's one of the few good examples in the Bible. We need to flee whenever we feel or sense or know by our conscience that a lust is about to overtake us. Or even just tempt us. Look at Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs 4. I'm dealing with little by little compromise. No one in here, I hope, would jump up and say, I'm ready to follow if someone came in and said, let's, let's leave the worship of God and serve our flesh. That isn't the way it's done. But little by little, the devil will accomplish the same thing, even as you may continue to sit here. Proverbs 4, verse 14. What's the warning of a wise man? Enter not into the path of the wicked. Don't enter the path of the wicked. The, even the way of the wicked. Even the general tendency of the wicked. Don't get in their path. Verse 14, go not in the way of evil men. Verse 15 is so blunt, plain, and repeats itself so well. Avoid it. Pass not by it. Turn from it and pass away. What super advice in a short little verse as the wise man repeats himself four times to avoid things, pass by it, not, don't even pass near them, turn away from them and pass away. It's to get away from something. And every one of you, every one of you God knows and you know I hope, I hope you're sensitive enough to be thinking about something in your life that is a danger to you. Do you know what the Bible says to you? It says, avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. 
Don't even get near it. Don't look at it. Turn the other way. Go as far as you can away from it. That is the word of the Lord about the things that attract us and that we know are sinful if we were to engage in them. Look at Isaiah 33 on this same point. Isaiah 33. The prophet over here puts it well. Verse 14 of Isaiah 33 is asking some questions. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who's going to survive? Verse 15 talks about survivors. When the judgment of God comes, verse 15, He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressions. Now watch this. That shaketh his hands from holding of bribes. Have you ever, can you, can you picture in your mind someone offering you a bribe and you're throwing your, your, what is this? But shaking your hands. You can see someone being offered a bribe. Don't you, don't give me that bribe. Don't even get that thing near me. Get that thing away from me. These that'll survive are the ones that shake their hands from holding of bribes, that stop his ears from hearing of blood. Whenever there is talk, about something evil that would take advantage of another man, he stops up his ears. He won't listen to it. And shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. If there's evil passing by, he shuts his eyes and he won't look at it. I like this verse because it says so plainly, the shaking of the hands to get away from something that is tempting. The stopping up of the ears so that you don't hear it. The covering of the eyes so that you don't see it. That's cutting it off at the pass. Right. Isaiah 33. Psalm 101 is very similar to that. Psalm 101 and verse 3. This is what we ought to all have sitting on top of our television. Psalm 101 and verse 3. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. The television isn't the wicked thing. It's what your heart wants to watch on the television that's the wicked thing. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work. Of them that turn aside, it shall not cleave to me. I will not let it touch me. Listen to the strength of the men speaking these verses. Listen to the strength. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I will cover my eyes. When it comes to television, it's very easy to cover your eyes. You hit a button. And you either turn it off or you turn it to another channel. I hate the work of them that turn aside. Do you hate what's on that television? Now, that television is geared to be very attractive to you. You watch it even when it's sin, and it's geared to be attractive to you. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. I don't care if it's funny. I don't care if they're trying to make a joke about sin or they're trying to make sin attractive. I won't look at it. I will not let it cleave to me. I hate it. Psalm 101, that's cutting it off before it can get started. Because if you set it before your eyes, what happens next? Your eyes look, your eyes desire, lust is conceived, sin results, death follows. James chapter 1. That's the the way it happens. We need to cut things off in our lives because little by little, you watch more, you watch more, it'll blind you. It'll break you down. It'll, It'll harden your soul. It'll sear your conscience. So it will no longer mean anything to you. Then you'll watch a little more. You'll allow yourself a little bit more liberty. 
We need to cut it off at the beginning. Look at Jude 1. Jude chapter 1. These are all references, brethren, dealing with the fact that because of the nature of sin, wanting to get us little by little, there are times we need to act drastically to cut things off out of our lives. Jude, verse 22 says, And of some have compassion, making a difference. You know, sometimes you're going to see brethren engaged in things that you know is just a weakness, and you can show compassion and be gentle toward them. But then there's another different way to approach people. And that's in verse 23, And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. If someone was in a fire, and you knew the way for them to get out, and or you knew the way to get them out, would you reason with them? If someone was in a fire, would you reason with them? You know, fire could be hazardous to your health. You know, if you don't hurry up and get out of there, it's just going to burn you up. Don't you think you ought to leave that fire? Aren't you convicted about being in that fire? Sometimes there's occasion for being compassionate. At other times, there is a need for drastic cutting off of sin and temptation in our lives. Others save with fear. You know, there's not enough fear of sin. This morning I preached that you'd fear sin a little bit more. Sin's dangerous. Do you ever want to get to the place, where, as it says over there in Isaiah 44, where you're so de- your, your soul is so deceived that you cannot deliver your soul? That's, that's frightening. Well, sometimes we need to make drastic actions to correct our family and to correct our personal lives and step back and start over again in the worship of God and clean, have some house cleaning. And it's to save as if you were in fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Because if you're living in a way that's even spotted by the flesh, it will not remain a spot for long. That spot will develop into leprosy that will cover you. We need to cut it off. There are times for drastic action at cutting and things off in our lives and making changes. This describes that difference. Sometimes a, a kind warning might be enough. Other times it's time for us with fear to move. May I remind you that the Bible describes several things that grow. How about leaven? A pinch of yeast in a lump of dough can cause the whole thing to swell. A little leaven, the Bible says, leaveneth the whole lump, a little pinch. And what is leaven in the Bible most representative of? Sin. What else does the Bible describe but a canker or a cancerous sore, how it spreads and grows? The Bible talks about a fire. It says... How great a matter a little fire kindleth. You know, one match. Doesn't Smokey the Bear tell you that one match dropped can burn down a whole forest? That's, that's the Bible. Our little members here, what a great matter a little fire can kindle. The Bible talks about a root of bitterness over in Hebrews chapter 12 about Esau. A root of bitterness springing up may trouble you. Now a root's not very dangerous. But a root that springs up can be. It can be a tree in your life. But a root... 
We need to cut off the leaven, the pinch. We need to cut off the little fire before it becomes a great matter. We need to cut off the root before it grows a tree. We need to remember that 1 Timothy chapter 4 tells us that men have their consciences seared. I preached on that this morning, the deceitfulness of sin. What happens is the voice no longer yells at you. The voice no longer is your check. It's seared by sinning against it. It's hardened. It's insensitive to anything. The Bible talks about a seared conscience. We want to spend time in prayer. We want to spend time in God's Word. We want to spend time examining our souls to make our consciences as tender and as sensitive as they possibly can be. That is the crying need in a generation that is so wicked and there's so much wickedness thrown in our faces all the time and we allow so much that our consciences get hardened so that they're not yelling when they should be yelling. They're whispering and we hardly hear them and we can run over them. Every one of us should have a sensitive conscience. I mentioned, I'll, I'll refer to it in just a moment. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. As this little by little approach into your soul takes place, your soul is not lost in a day. Your soul's not lost in an hour. You have been laying the groundwork for the loss of your soul if you ever lose it. You've been laying the groundwork for it. You've become insensitive to sin. You've become insensitive to righteousness. You're no longer putting up the fight. Little by little, your soul can become dead, and then you're lost. And you better hope that God will restore a right spirit within you and renew that right spirit and give you wisdom again in your inward parts because God will have to give it back. I call this incremental compromise. And it's something for the last six to nine months has been pretty vivid in my mind. Increments. You all, an increment is a little bit. A little bit at a time. A little bit at a time. We don't lose things overnight. We don't lose families. We don't lose our souls. We don't lose things overnight. We lose them in increments. And that is how the devil deceives men. And that's what I want you to remember from this evening is how you've got to back up and cut off the opportunity for that loss. And there's, there's a precious few examples in the Bible of men that did it. And there's some examples of men in Scripture who didn't do it and suffered as a consequence. Sin takes your soul a little bit at a time. And we need to back up and recover that ground, and not let the devil, our flesh, the world, or sin, take those little pieces of our soul at a time and harden our soul. You know, a heart attack works very similarly. A, a, a heart attack that you live through, it, part of your heart's dead. Part of your heart muscle dies. You go through another one, a little bit more dies. If it doesn't rejuvenate itself, a little bit more dies. And so it's not pumping as efficiently. And eventually you'll have a heart attack that takes out the remaining strength that the heart needed to pump your blood, and it's fatal. And your soul is taken a little bit at a time. Men come into this world with a rational sense of knowing that a tree cannot be their deliverer. And they end up worshiping that tree because step by step they are blinded 
until they follow that lie and they don't even know it's in their right hand. Their soul's deceived and they don't know it. Now I'm going to try to put something on the screen and still continue talking to you and hope that it will be easy for you to visualize. Some of you may have a difficult time seeing. And if it's not as clear and as nice as you'd like it to be, I'm sorry. This is our first attempt. Incremental compromise. The word increment means little, a little bit, a part of it, a portion. And we compromise by increments. And the first thing I'd like to point out is that if this is righteousness over here, if this is righteousness and this is sin over on this side, how do we, what happens to us? Everyone in here that's a child of God knows that there have been times in your life when you were strong. Your love and joy in God, your fear of Him, your hatred of sin was stronger than at other times. What happens? This does not happen. There's not a wholesale transfer from being a righteous man, from living a holy life, from being pure and being sensitive to coming over here and living a sinful life of permissiveness resulting in your spiritual death to where your past feeling. How does that happen? That change does not take place wholesale in one flip. You don't go from living a holy and a pure life to living a permissive life of spiritual death to where your past feeling it happens in what we call increments. And it's those increments that I, w I want this picture to be in your mind because I'm going to have it up there in different ways for the next few minutes. This picture is a frightening picture because this is how the devil gets us. This is how sin buys and steals our souls. You will start with a little. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but can you remember the man who said... See, it's just a little one. I, I know you remember. You should remember who that was. But isn't aren't those the very words he used? See, it's just a little one. Have you ever said that to yourself? You've all said that to yourselves. It's just a little one. Well, then you're going to need a little more. You know, if if you give in to a little, your soul will demand a little more. Because what happens with most things in life is that you get expectations expectations develop. If you flattered yourself by giving yourself some little indulgence in sin, you'll take a little bit more. To make it... For those of you who've ever tried training, dil training diligently at some athletic pursuit, if you take a day off that you shouldn't have taken off, it's just one day. Don't you tell yourself it's just one day, it won't hurt, you roll over, you slap the alarm clock, you go back to sleep. But what happens the next day? It is easier. Don't we all know that? If you're on a diet and you're invited over to someone's house or someone takes you out and it's just one of your favorite meals and you indulge yourself by eating what you shouldn't have eaten, you get through that one hurdle. What happens 12 hours, 6 hours, or 24 hours later when you're offered another meal that's going to compromise your diet? It's easier. You get expectations, so you keep doing more. 
There are certain sins that I could talk about that I won't, and I hope your minds are good enough to know it. You know, there are certain chemical dependencies that people get, and there are certain other sins that men are subject to, that you get used to the pleasure that a little gives you, and a little will not give you that pleasure anymore, so you need a little bit more. And a little bit more won't give you the pleasure, but now you have expectations for pleasure, so you got to have more. And what it turns into are habits. Now you're used to it. You've all started training programs and quit them. I sure have. I wish I, w- I, wish I hadn't. But it happens because we start with a little bit of compromise, and it ends up being a habit. And then we're out of, we're out of training. Then there's addiction. We get addicted to the pleasure. We have to have it. And so a little bit, a little choice here has led to a little bit more, and then to expectations, then to habits, then to addiction. And then you, my friend, are blind. You're no longer even thinking about your diet. If you, if you want to go back to that illustration, you're not even thinking about your diet. You're not even thinking about training. You're engaged in some sin. You're not even thinking about it. You're just enjoying it because your addiction has now blinded you, and you are over here. You did not get there wholesale. You got there by making a number of choices that led you there. Is this the truth of your experience? Amen. Righteousness. Sin. We don't go there in a fell swoop, but there are strong forces demanding that you end up over there. There is Satan. 1 Peter 5, 8. He walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan has one intent in this world, and that is to pull men off of the worship of God. He cannot replace God. He can't take God on in open conflict, but he can go after those that God has redeemed through Jesus Christ and pull us off of faithful worship of him, and he's gained a victory. Satan wants to get you over there. There is a being that has emissaries in this room right now that wants to get you over there. Your heart. We dealt with that this morning. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It's desperately wicked. It demands that you end up over there. You want peace for your heart? Just go over here to the sin side and your heart will be at peace. It no longer has a struggle. And we've got the world. 1 John 2.15-17 All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's on your television, it's on the billboards, it's in magazines, it's at the mall, it's among your friends, it's on the radio, it's everywhere. It is trying to get you over there because it is the prince of the power of the air that's governing all that. These three forces will not rest content until they have you moved from righteousness to sin. This is not some little battle that we're in. This is a great warfare that we're to fight and we're to arm ourselves with some suffering as I preached last Sunday, and be willing to suffer. Because stopping this progress means suffering. You will never win this conflict without suffering. And the suffering is giving up some things that you like. That's right. I know you know this, but a picture I hope will help. Eve. Very good. Innocent. She enjoyed peace. In the Garden of Eden with her husband, she was in the Garden of Eden. She had hope for the future. Over here, we have damned. Rather than innocent, 
she's now sinful. Rather than peace, she has fear. Rather than being in, she's out. Rather than hope, there's dread. When you compare those two, isn't that the greatest contradiction, distinction that you can possibly have between what Eve had in the Garden of Eden and what we have over here? Eve did not get there with that. Eve got there with this. Question. Genesis 1. She entertained a question. She started out the path. She, oh, If you'd have asked her, Eve, would you like to be damned, sinful, be filled with fear and dread, and be thrown out of the garden? What would she have said? No way. No way. How about if you just ask a question? Are you serious? Did God really mean that? Then what'd she do? She gave place to the devil. 3-2. The devil asked her a question. She responded to that question. She did not flee lust. She did not cut off the devil. She responded. She participated with the devil. And because of that, she's then engaged in questioning God, and she now overstates the situation by saying she can't even touch the tree. She's making it worse than it actually was in Genesis chapter 3. After that, the devil says, well, you really want to know the truth? If you'll eat it, you'll be like God. He knows that. That's why he doesn't want you to eat it. She considers. Do you know that an entire race of beings has gone from this to this because of this little incremental scale. A woman listened to a question, gave place to the devil, overstated the situation, making it worse than it was. God was quite merciful to them in the garden. She then considers his arguments. Well, maybe, you know, that sounds like God might want to hide it from me if it would make me like him. Then she dropped her guard. You know how she dropped her guard? She turned and she looked at the tree. She, she heard a question. She gave place to the devil. She overstated it back to him. The devil told her what it might do for her. And she turned and she looked at it. When she looked at it, what is always going to be there when you look? When you take that step of looking, what will be there? A tree desired to make one wise. A tree good for food. And so on. And that's in 3.6. Then, of course, once you're this far along, guess what you want to do? You want to include others. And she takes Adam with her. And brethren, that is how this world is in sin. Because from very good and innocent, peaceful, in the garden, upright, filled with hope for the future, they ended up damned and, and sinful because of an incremental process. The devil did not walk up and say, you want to lose everything you got? No one would ever do that. He comes up, and this is the process it takes. Lot. As long as Lot was with Abraham, he had the worship of the true God, and he was involved in blessings. Now that's just to summarize what took place in the cave. If you'd asked Lot earlier in his life, Lot, Would you get so drunk you didn't even know what was going on? And 
sleep with your own daughters? What would a righteous man have said? No way. Not a chance. Are you kidding? I fear God. I wouldn't do that. How did he get there? And we went through this before. I want a picture in your mind because when I'm done tonight, I want your name at the top of that, the name of your family, as you think about what you're doing in your home that might get you over there. Lot was selfish. He had a choice to stay with Abraham or make it big or bigger for himself. The first one's rather simple. He was selfish in Genesis 13, 11. He chose prosperity rather than righteousness. You seek first the kingdom of God, and God will add the prosperity to you if it's His will for your life. You choose the prosperity, you're taking another step. So remember what the Bible says, they that will be rich fall into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. And Lot ended up drowned. We then find him, when he chose prosperity, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the next time we read about a war that took place with the city of Sodom, he is in Sodom. He's making choices. This was a choice to leave Abraham. This was a choice to pitch his tent toward Sodom. This was a choice here to live in Sodom. Genesis 14, 12. We then find him giving his daughters in marriage to the men of Sodom. Over in chapter 19 and verse 14. He allowed marriages. He's making choices to give up the righteousness that Abraham had taught him. What did Abraham do when he wanted a wife for his son? He sent back home to make sure he got one of his kindred that knew about the true God. Lot didn't do that. Another step out this line. As the angels are dragging Lot out of the city of Sodom, he asks for the city of Zoar. And so we have here a compromising man, never willing to make a drastic change in his life, asks for Zoar, and then drunk. You know, when it says the daughters made their father drink, it, it says the daughters made their father drink wine, I don't believe they handcuffed him and put a pipe down his throat and poured it in. They made it available and they made it a very pleasant evening, and that man drank himself drunk from his heart. He was a compromiser. He started with a choice of selfishness. He picked prosperity over righteousness. He decided he could live in Sodom and have the best of both worlds. He gave his daughters up in marriage. He wanted Zoar. It's just a little sin. Still compromising until he is drunk, blinded, and that's where the Bible leaves him in a cave with his two daughters. He would have never said that he could get there. You would say you can never get there unless you stop the progress across the incremental line of compromise, you will get there. Samson, what did he have going for him? He, he had strength like no man has ever had. He was a leader and he was the hope of Israel. How did he end up? Weak, a slave, and dead. If you'd have walked up to Samson and said, Hey, Samson, you know what you're going to be in just a few years? You're going, to be a, you're going to be a slave of the Philistines without any strength, and you're going to kill yourself. What would a man like Sam... Couldn't happen. Couldn't happen. Did it happen in one swoop? Was Delilah the only problem in his life? 
the first thing Samson did is he disobeyed his parents. Do you remember when he found, he found uh, uh, it was a girl in Timnath, and his parents said, you may not have her. He said, I want her anyway. She pleases me well. Go get her. He disobeyed his parents about marriage. That's the first thing you can read about in the life of Samson that he did wrong. And then he chose a Philistine. I'll abbreviate that as Phil. Don't be offended, anyone. He chose a Philistine for his wife instead of the people of God. After disobeying his parents, he went ahead and chose a Philistine to be his wife. Now, about that time, he went and visited a harlot in Gaza. Do you remember that? He was visiting the harlot. The men of the city knew he was there, so they locked the city gates up on him. And he woke up in the middle of the night and said, wait a minute, they locked me in. So he just takes the gates off their hinges and walks to a nearby hill and plants them up there. But what was he doing in that city of Gaza, one of the five capital cities of the Philistines? He was there with a harlot. He's disobeyed his parents once about a woman. He got in trouble by choosing a Philistine that God wouldn't let him have. And he ended up killing 30 Philistines for her. He ends up with a harlot. He ignores, he ignores he's weak in an area of his life. And that weakness, thank you, he ignores that he's weak. Can't you see a pattern? He's weak in this area of his life with women. That's another step to it. The Bible says, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. This man did not recognize his weakness in this area. And so he runs in, and believe me, if you don't want to do that, God will bring the temptation along. He met Delilah. Now he met Delilah. How blind was Samson? Can you believe a man whose strength was in his hair that had a woman say, tell me where your strength is? And so he deceives her by telling her something else. You know, he said seven new ropes that have never touched anyone. And he wakes up after telling his woman that, this woman that loves him so much, she, he tells her that, and he wakes up being bound with seven ropes. Would something, tri would something go off in your head? <laughs> Not when you're that far on the scale. It doesn't go off in your head. How can a man worship the trunk of a tree? She did that to him three times. That's right. How in the world did he finally tell her, it's in my hair, <coughs> knowing knowing beyond any doubt that she was going to cut it off. Because of that word right there, his conscience was gone. He had ignored a problem he had, and he just kept sliding across this scale. He can't stop. You're blind. You're hardened. Your conscience is seared. David. It did not happen like that. It never does. It happens in increments. And the Bible gives us enough to know this. One, where were all the other kings in 2 Samuel 11? 1? In battle. He wasn't there. For some reason, for whatever reason we don't know, the Bible just tells us his focus, his purpose, his aim, his normal pattern of behavior had been thrown off and he was not in battle when it was the time for kings to be in battle. The Bible says he sent Joab instead and he stayed home. He wasn't engaged in the conflict God gave him to be engaged in. Listen, David loved battle. David was a man of war. He should have been there. He wasn't there, and the Bible tells us that. Number two, he made a provision for his flesh by taking a walk where he, know, where he knew he could have 
seen things. And of course, God will bring along a temptation if you're providing for that opportunity. And God gave him one in 2 Samuel 11, 2, when he saw Bathsheba from the rooftop of the palace. What was the third thing he did? He indulged the temptation by asking about her. Now, before he sent for her, he asked about her. That is following, that's taking the provision. You've made a provision. Now you're facing a temptation. Instead of cutting that thing off and fleeing youthful lust, he indulges it by asking, who is the woman? That's 11.3. You can just follow through the verses and see what he did. And then you've got the first sin in 11.4 when he takes her. Then you've got consequences as she tells him that she's pregnant. 11.5. And then you've got second sin as he committed murder to cover it up. How did it all start? Right here was a choice David made. We, we're not told why. We're not told why. And I don't know why you may make a choice. But there was a choice not to keep fully focused on the responsibilities God gave him. And if we get moved off the responsibilities God's given us, we can take that first step. And once you take that first step, you are more open to a provision for your flesh. And because you've made one compromise, once you're over here and God brings a temptation, you just might indulge it. And the farther you slide, the more you get into consequences and you cover for them. Every time we sin and we have consequences, there's the, there's the need to have to sin further unless drastic measures are taken. You know, in any place in here, a line could be drawn with drastic measures taken to have stopped the progress from this to this. But it didn't happen. And Satan will do that with every one of us by taking us from this to this in increments. Let me just pick on a couple areas of our lives. Over here, we call them the heritage of the Lord. Over here, what do we call them? <laughs> Monsters. Shame and calamity. How do you get there? They come, they come in so helpless they can't do anything. We have them for 20 years. How do we cross this line? We don't do it in one swoop. We do it in increments. And I don't know you. I don't know your family life. You don't know mine all that well. I don't know, but I'm just going to guess because I think we're all similar enough to know where our weaknesses are. Do we ever cheat on devotions? And I'm not a fundamentalist, and I'm not a Pharisee, but devotions are exactly commanded in the Word of God. Amen. The Bible says that, when, that we're to take heed to all the commandments that God's given us, and we're to speak of them when we sit in our house, when we rise, and when we go, go to bed, and when we're walking by the wayside over there in Deuteronomy chapter 6. They are commanded. Do we ever cheat? Do we ever cheat on devotions with our kids? And by devotions, I don't mean reading our daily bread, which is something I knew from the past. I mean actually sitting down and teaching our children the Word of God in a loving, insightful way, knowing our children. Do we ever cheat on that? That's work. We cheat on it. I've cheated on it. 
we then all have to make school options. And this isn't so much as where as it is what you do about it. Every option we choose has to be a well thought out plan. And you can have a well thought out plan with any option. But what is, is your school option a well thought out plan for your child? You know, you're going to give them up for, what is it, 13 years to the influence of other instruction. How well thought out have been your school options? What are your choices about their friends? Do you ever get too busy? When do you pay for peace by selling purity in your home, by allowing some things you didn't want to allow, but in order to maintain peace, you'll do it? When do you start allowing them to think for themselves? Now, I may sound like a tyrant when I write that, but I don't believe children have any right to think more than God thinks we have a right to think. And right. you know what he says about us? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. And those are the words from a father to a son. And they are the words that I expect my children to follow, and I hope you're the same way. Because that's the way God deals with us. Trust me, and don't think. I'll train them to think my way, and they will learn to think automatically by God giving them maturity. We start across this scale... We start allowing thinking, and once they start thinking, then pattern, a pattern is made, and they're used to thinking for themselves, and then they are demanding things, and we meet the demands, and we end up over here. This scares me for me, it scares me for all of us. They come into our lives so helpless and vulnerable and open to instruction. Children are open to instruction. And we have to draw a line in here someplace and say, this is as far as this bus is going. It's not going all the way across. I'm going to draw a line and keep my children as the heritage of the Lord. I use this just as an example for you to have a picture in your mind. Everything you do can be put in a scale like this relative to incremental compromise where the devil cheats us little by little until he has us bought. Your spirituality. Have you ever known this? And if you haven't, you have a more serious problem than incremental compromise. Have you ever known joy in the Lord? Amen. Have you known spiritual oblivion? Nothing affects you. Nothing moves you. There's no joy. You have to force yourself to the motions of your religion. Have you ever gone from this to this? It doesn't happen overnight. It does not happen overnight. It happens like this. What I call devotions before, I'll call the family altar here. The first thing you may give up is the time you spend with your family teaching them the Word of God and exalting God in the life of your home. Then goes daily prayer. Now you may keep up your daily reading for a little while longer because you can read more easily than you can pray. Have you ever noticed that? You can read the Bible, but you might not be able to pray. It's a scale. It's an increment at a time. You stop doing it with the family. Then you stop praying. Then you stop daily reading. Then you start filling in other ways to entertain your mind. And you allow extra television. Then you start indulging lusts. Then we hear of this. 
criticize the church, blame the church, blame the pastor, blame the members. And then you know what happens? You indulge spiritual hopelessness. And when you indulge spiritual hopelessness, you are in spiritual oblivion. And that is how it happens. We make a choice right here. And what I, you know, when we look at this, that doesn't mean that one night of the week, or t- even two nights of the week, something happens that takes you off of devotions with your family that are acts of God out of your control. But you have a plan that every time you can be, you're going to be available and have a family altar. And you're going to have the kind of prayer I've mentioned today. And you're going to read the Word of God and meditate on His precepts. You do those things. You're not going to want to do this over here. You're not going to want to indulge your lust. But if, you break, if, you, if these things break down, you'll start feeding yourself with extra television, indulging lust, criticizing the church, and you'll get to a place of spiritual hopelessness where in your soul, I just can't do it anymore. I just don't have the victory. I'm just going to give up. I'll go through the motions because they're expected of me, but I'm going to give up. And you are in spiritual oblivion. That isn't what God's called us to. He's called us to joy in the Lord. He's called us to righteousness. And we can only be there by holding fast and not slipping out that increment of compromise. Now let's give ourselves a man. I studied the life of Joseph this week. As, a, as an aside, what a glorious man. Amen. He was a righteous man. He was a faithful man. He was a loyal man. He was pure, and God blessed him wherever he was. It didn't matter. The devil wanted Joseph over here sinful, wicked, betraying his trust, vile, and forsaken by God. Do all of you believe that? Mm-hmm. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that, except 1 Peter 5, 8 and a host of other texts. Is that where the devil wanted him? Is that where his flesh wanted him? Is that where his deceitful heart wanted him? Is that where the world wanted him? Amen. Is that where Potiphar's wife wanted him? That's right. right over there, Joseph. Was Joseph ever tempted? Mm-hmm. By an invite from Potiphar's wife. He did two things that should be very valuable to us. He drew a line that wasn't going to let that thing go any farther. Do you know how he first drew that line? He made a verbal commitment. It says that she asked him, and he made a verbal commitment. He made a glorious statement of about two verses length where he first of all described his loyalty to his master and then his loyalty to God that he could not do such a thing. And by making that statement out, making it to her, making it himself, getting that out, drew the first line, I will not do such great wickedness, and he gave the reasons why. And that's the first thing we ought to, when we are confronted by a temptation to sin, to make that verbal commitment that Joseph did was to commit himself to a stand. To even to go back on that, to go back on that would have been compromising his own personal pride. 
let alone the fact he'd been compromising God and his master, but he made that verbal commitment. Now she didn't quit daily and finally tried to force him. He kept up his verbal commitment. And then, how did he draw this line? He fled. Why, when we look at Adam and Eve, they ended up over there. We look at Samson, ended up over there. Lot, all the way across. David, all the way across. Look at Joseph. Joseph was 30, Joseph was approximately 30 years old. He was in his 20s when he was at Potiphar's house. He was in a foreign land. That woman would have been a, an attractive woman from a number of standpoints, being an influential woman in Egypt. Away from home, this man took this kind of a stand. He had a conscience that was sensitive to God. He had made personal commitments in his heart that he would trust in the Lord with all his heart and lean not to his own understanding. You know, when, we, when I say the words, or when Jesus said the words, pluck out your right eye and cut off your right hand, sometimes they don't mean anything personal to us. What did it do for Joseph? He lost his job. He lost his job and was thrown in prison. He made that choice. Is that suffering against the flesh? That's armed with the mind of Christ long before Christ even came. We're talking about losing your job and ending up in the innermost prison under the captain of the guard. He made that choice rather than sin against his God. That's the choice we all are supposed to make. That's right. That's the choice of drawing a heavy line and saying, this thing is going no further. Now, he didn't quit his job. He didn't quit his job. I'm going to say on behalf of Joseph, he didn't quit his job because that verbal commitment was so strong, he wasn't worried about it. But when the temptation became greater by her trying to force him, he did quit his job. And there would be times that we have to do things like that, which is cutting off our right hand or plucking out our right eye. Amen. There's few examples like that in the Bible, but I'm glad there's Joseph there for every one of us to see and realize that it can be done by the grace of God. Right. I want to give you, though, Jesus Christ about the incremental compromise. Where'd the devil want him? More than anyone else that's ever walked this planet, Satan made a concerted personal attempt against Jesus Christ to defeat him in his life. He was victorious when God put him here, the incarnate Son of God. I know you know this. I want you to see it in this form, if you would allow me. He was tempted to turn the stones to bread. How did he respond? He drew that thick line. He resisted the devil, and he quoted the Bible. Didn't he? Right. Did he trust in the Lord with all his heart? What did the Lord say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. He trusted those words. He, do you know how hungry you'd be after 40 days without taking anything? He trusted that word. God had said, you do, honor something more than bread. Honor my words. Jesus resisted the devil, quoted that Bible verse, fully practicing what I preached to you this morning from Proverbs 3.5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart 
and lean not unto thine own understanding. Do you know what my understanding might have said? Well, a little bit of bread won't hurt me. I'm still not going to follow that devil. You know, a little TV's not going to hurt me. I'm not going to live their lifestyle. That's how I'd reason. I'm, I'm afraid I'd reason that way. Jesus Christ resisted the devil and quoted the Bible. So along came the devil again. He tempted him with glory. He resisted the devil and quoted the Bible. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou worship. Do you remember? He resisted the devil. You know the rest of this. He was tempted a third time with a promise. What a subtle temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a promise in the Bible. Why don't you see if it'll work? But he was seeing if it would work because of the devil asking him to do it. And so he resisted the devil again by quoting the Bible. He said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Is that trusting the Lord with all thine heart? That's right. You've got a Bible verse. You've got a Bible verse. Why not just cast yourself off and let the angels protect you? Because there's another Bible verse that says, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Jesus Christ was victorious. We all like Joseph, and men especially like Joseph, and young men like Joseph even more. But Jesus Christ is the example that we're to follow. Amen. And what happened after that final resisting? The devil took off. <laughs> Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Solomon said, give me thine heart. To give God our hearts is to think this way in our hearts and to prepare ourselves against the day of battle by making these choices before we face them. That's right. As I pointed out this morning from Proverbs chapter 3, it's putting God's commandments in our heart, verses 1 through 8. How about Abraham and Lot? What will you be? These are sermons I've preached. I can't preach them again. At least I'm not going to preach them again unless God changes my mind. Will we be like Abraham or will we be like Lot and make shipwreck of our lives? How about the use of our conscience? Joseph had a sensitive, lively conscience, and it saved him. How about the full trust and confidence in God that Jesus Christ showed that whatever God had said, he was going to abide by it? He was hungry. God said there's something more important than bread. Of course he wanted glory, but I'll take glory the way God gives it. Of course he wanted to believe the promises of Scripture, but I won't tempt the Lord in trying those promises. Sin is going to take you, and it's going to take me, and it's going to take our families, and it's going to take our church in the way you saw in that scale of incremental compromise, little by little compromise. Every story in the Bible that tells us of a man sinning, if you'll read the details, it will tell you how he sinned. Because there were steps and choices that man made that led to the place where his conscience was seared, his eyes and understanding were blinded, he was past feeling, and he went into a sin. And if it's not for the grace of God to recover us from a situation like that, will not be recovered. That's having a lie in your right hand and not knowing it. Brethren, sin is deceitful. I preached that this morning from Hebrews chapter 3 and other places. And sin will take you a little bit at a time. I don't know your hearts. I don't know your minds right now. I don't know what particular thing 
you are being tempted with or things. But whatever it is, if you're allowing it to slide you across that scale, you are headed for the consequences on the right-hand side. You are headed for spiritual oblivion if it's the giving up of your spiritual discipline in your life. You're headed for a ruined family if you're not training your children the way the Bible tells us to do. And when it says trust in the Lord, that doesn't mean I hope God will take care of my kids. It means whatever God has said, I'm going to do. And I pray that I'll do this and you'll do this without talking about it and without a big ado over it, but hearing the word of the Lord that we're going to trust in Him and believe every one of His precepts as not only being right and true, but being for our prosperity and peace and doing them and not deceiving ourselves thinking we can find peace and prosperity better our own way. Right. I trust that with, the, with these recent sermons and with today and with this mental picture in your mind, I hope that you will look at your own life and say, I am not where I once was. I am across that scale someplace and you'll draw a line like Joseph did and stop your progress in that direction. And that you'll back up and reclaim that ground by the grace of Christ and that we'll pray and search our souls and find out there may be some areas in our life where we're sliding across that scale we haven't even recognized yet. And may God help us see them and may we be recovered out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. May the Lord bless us to that end.